From AI and robotics to cryptocurrency and human gene editing, we're living in an exciting age of rapid technological change. Over the last few months, this show has explored the many promises as well as threats of these new technologies that offer to empower and liberate us whilst also stifling and repressing us. This includes threatening our basic human rights, like the rights to privacy and non-discrimination. In her new book, Sushma Raman, Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Harvard Kennedy School, sets out to understand the relationship between recent socio-technical change and fundamental human rights. She argues that if we are to fulfill the vision of the good society, we need to make a more concerted effort to not only defend our existing rights, but to adapt them to our new socio-technical reality. listening to Technology in Prose, a member of the Oxford Podcast Collective. I'm Nikita Agarwal, and on today's show, I'm joined by Sushma Raman to discuss her new book, The Coming Good Society, Why New Realities Demand New Rights. Sushma, welcome to Technology and Prose. Thank you so much, Nikita. So your book is titled The Coming Good Society, Why New Realities Demand New Rights. I wanted to start by talking about what we mean by the good society. Um, so what, in your view, defines a good society? So we draw, by the way, I should mention that my co-author is Bill Schultz, the former executive director of Amnesty International USA and a senior fellow at the Carr Center where I'm the executive director, and we've worked on this together. And we define the good society by drawing on the work of Martha Nussbaum uh, and her work on capabilities. And we think about how capabilities, thinking about people's capabilities, can help us think about their quality of life and um, seeing that as a measure of the good society. And um, we think about capabilities in areas such as bodily health and integrity, education, Uh, the ability to produce self-expressive works, uh, the option to participate in in political and civic life, and so on. And these are all, um, you know, qualities that uh, Nussbaum, uh, you know, outlines quite in depth in her work on the capabilities approach. And to realize these capabilities really requires us to have a corresponding focus and respect for rights as well. Okay. Um, And so how do we decide um, what rights are required or what capabilities are required in a good society? So if you take the capabilities approach, how do you decide what is essential to well-being? Well, what's great is we already have a body of work we can draw upon and in order to look forward. So for example, her work on capabilities has quite a bit of um, focus on different capabilities that one needs. And then that has been further developed by groups like the United Nations as they think about how to measure the progress in different societies, where perhaps in the past we would look solely on, you know, gross domestic product or economic growth as the way to measure a country's progress. Today, we would look at a human development index and a range of factors that would help us assess how individuals and societies are progressing. Similarly, I think um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights provides us with an existing framework 
on the range of rights that the international community has agreed upon. And I think our book's starting point is that these rights are all very important. We've accomplished a great deal in the past 70 years. Uh, but at this stage, it's really important to think about the impact of scientific and technological advancements, uh, norms changes, other kinds of developments, um, and think about how do we ensure that these rights are as robust and relevant in the coming decades. I mean, I think it's quite interesting to think about when and where we need new rights as opposed to um, expanding or reinterpreting existing rights. Um, so could you talk a bit about kind of how you make that distinction? At what point you say, okay, well, we need to recognize something new or we actually need to work on strengthening existing rights? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what we try and say in our book is that the chapters that cover a range of topics, such as the right to privacy and um, you know a range of other issues, these are meant to pre- uh, not to predict, but rather to provoke thinking and collective action. So we don't have a prescriptive list of like 10 rights that have to be established and 10 that have to be reconceptualized, but rather we lay out a set of questions for people to consider and think about as they think about the future. Very often we found that those in the human rights movement are really focused on the current crisis, right? Like what is the current issues of the day? How do we uh, seek redress for violations of these rights? How do we ensure these don't happen again? But we don't often take the time to look up and look at the horizon because of these very many crises that are occurring both in our domestic context, but also globally. So our thinking is really about how do we expand these um, conversations? And in some cases, I think we'll have to think of some of these rights in new ways, like how do we think of the right to privacy, which is really codified in many constitutions and in the, you know, in, in various covenants and declarations, but then we have to really think about how to, re- how to approach that in a context where um, there's increased surveillance uh, by governments and commodification of our data by private actors. And then in other cases, it might be completely new rights um, or you know, it might be applicable in certain situations. For example, um, you know, uh, we, we talk about the right to live free of corruption, which in the past might not have been thought of as a right it's seen as an economic loss to a country or a, um, you know, perhaps a financial loss, but it would actually improve um, the ability of people to live lives free of um, other uh, human rights violations if they're able to live free of corruption. Absolutely. Um, so, so you mentioned privacy. Um, could, you, could you tell us a bit about um, what exactly is the threat, the, the coming threats to privacy um, in, in you know, today's society? Um, that that require us to expand or strengthen the protection of the right to privacy? Yeah, so this was actually a very interesting chapter to work on because one of the things I realized is that very often people think of the right to privacy as a bit more of a luxury or not as essential as things like, you know, the right to live free of torture or, you know, some of these other core rights. But what we found is actually that the right to privacy is actually quite essential for us to be able to live lives free of surveillance, free of torture, and so on, because the these acts against uh, environmental defenders, human rights defenders, journalists, and uh, anti-corruption activists, uh, women's rights activists, and so on, these um, incursions into their private lives is often the first step taken to then perhaps arrest them, detain them, even in some cases uh, resulting in people's deaths. 
So um, this is a really, really essential right. And, um, you know, it's also something that affects a range of people. You know, we may often, people often think of human rights as something that affects people halfway around the world. And really, um, the right to privacy is something that affects individuals around the world. And what we're seeing is that the use of increasingly sophisticated, um, you know, surveillance technologies used both by governments as well as by private companies really affects our abilities to live our lives free of tracking. And this surveillance society has been in place for a long time, but I think in the post 9-11 era, there have been a lot of developments around the world in many countries where governments have used national security as a justification to increase um, their surveillance of individuals. And um, this happens not just for people who are alleged to have committed crimes, but really all of us are affected by this. And then the sort of the use of big data and the compilation of information on everything from what we purchase to the the websites we visit to, you know, tracking where we go to our photographs on social media, all of these can create a composite of us in ways that, um, you know, are problematic for our, our, our range of our rights. And so um, tell us, like, in, to what extent recognizing or strengthening a right to privacy is the solution um, here, as opposed to um, other other remedies? No, definitely. So I think, and then part of, you know, uh, what the book tries to do is lay out a landscape and raise some potential approaches or topics for consideration. But we also realize that as time progresses, technological advancements are such that, you know, it's impossible to predict like each and every development that one might uh, want to embark upon. So within this broader landscape, one might think about the movements that are taking place, for example, around banning facial recognition that is being used against, for example, uh, racial justice activists in, in cities like Detroit. Uh, one can think about movements in, um, you know, around accountability of, uh, you know, software companies that are, are having their technology misused by governments to track down and and really hunt down people who are exposing gross violations of human rights. Um, one can think of efforts to expose algorithmic bias in criminal justice systems, in um, asylum seeking and immigration systems, which result in um, you know, uh, treatment of people who are vulnerable and where it's you know, unclear whether the data that is being collected that generates these algorithms um, whether they're biased, you know, the ways that decisions are being made and so on. So I think there's different ways in which one can approach um, the issue of the right to privacy. And, um, you know, I think it involves everyone. It involves civil society organizations that are really trying to, um, you know, integrate awareness of technology within their portfolios. It involves policymakers who are often behind the curve in thinking about how to address technology's advancements. And it involves really the international community because many of these issues have been debated, um, but not necessarily, you know, like a lot of the architecture we're talking about was created, you know, 70 years ago when we were not living in a digital age. Absolutely. And um, there's also kind of regional variations, right, um, in terms of cultures of privacy and attitudes towards privacy or you know, the use of data and surveillance. And so have you engaged with the sort of um, variations, intercultural variations in this right to privacy and how it might need to take different forms in different parts of the world? 
Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, the, even that word privacy, I think, maybe is a misnomer because people often think about it as, you know, a bit of a luxury. You know, in a lot of cultures, you don't necessarily grow up thinking of a right to privacy. But really what this is, is, um, you know, a right to live in dignity without fear, without stigmatization, the ability to have freedom of movement, the freedom of expression, um, you know, it's related to a, a, a range of relevant rights and freedoms. And so, you know, if we're tempted to think that this applies to more uh, societies with more sophisticated technologies and more resources, this is actually playing out in the majority of the world. So if you look at India and China, both countries are embarking on these very ambitious national citizen identification systems. Um, and, you know, with different ramifications, of course, you know, in China with the social credit score and then India with the Aadhaar system. But then a lot of these sophisticated surveillance technologies are being exported by China around the world. And so they're being utilized in countries like Venezuela and Uganda and elsewhere um, by governments. And so, you know, this is something actually we think of as something that's happening universally, even if it might manifest in different ways in different countries. I was curious also, though, about sort of attitudes towards these technologies um, in different countries, right? So is it the case that in Indian and Chinese culture, there is as much of a sense of privacy in the way that we understand it in, in Western um, cultures, or is it conceived in a different way? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I don't know if I have a, 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 an answer to that, in part, because even within these societies, they're not homogenous, right? So they, there's uh, different layers based on the regions you're from, perhaps the religions you follow, the your gender, your your status in society. Um, so I'd imagine that there isn't necessarily one answer for even within one society. And again, I think perhaps the word privacy uh, needs to be extended or reframed for us to think about this in terms of human dignity and kind of the preservation of creative options for human flourishing. Certainly. Um, and so I wanted to move on to another interesting um, chapter in your book. Of course, your book covers a lot of ground, but you know, given the theme of the show, I, I want to focus on the sort of technological dimensions. Um, and, and so one of the um, technological realities that you discuss is uh, genetic um, technology, genetic engineering. Um, and there have been a lot of rec uh, impressive recent advances, particularly in human gene editing um, and DNA sequencing. Um, but, but this does raise some tricky questions, though, doesn't it, about, you know, particularly DNA sequencing, the, the rights that we have to our DNA and to control the use of our DNA? Yeah, again, I think that this is an area where um, there's been a lot of changes over the past few decades, but even more so in the coming decades. So just think about the things we do in recent times, right? For example, um, you know, some people might take a DNA test to see where your ancestors came from, right? That's very common. And in fact, in the book, we outline how uh, the Golden State Killer in the US was tracked down by not his DNA, but by a family member's DNA, that was part of a DNA database, right? So we may think that it's okay to use it for the purposes of tracking down a criminal, but then we also talk about the use of what's called shed DNA, and that is basically uh, DNA that might be left in a public place, like something that's discarded in a trash can. And, you know, um, you know, can this be obtained without a warrant or the permission of the shedder? 
yes, but then there are circumstances where it may give us pause. And, you know, we talk about uh, an example from Argentina where um, you had a situation where there were, you know, people who were disappeared and um, uh, there was a group that, you know, came together of grandmothers to find the missing and disappeared children of people who were, um, you know, kidnapped and presumably killed. And there was one person who did not want his DNA tested and utilized uh, for this purpose because um, there was just a lot to think about that his biological parents were not really his parents and may possibly have been involved in the disappearance and likely murder of his parents because these children who were often handed over um, uh, to uh, people in society who were involved in the abduction. So, you know, there were a lot of competing claims that had to be um, taken into account. And this really raises the fundamental question of whether we own our own DNA. And of course, you know, we might think that this is something that is important in a good society where we think about the control of our own information. Um, and there has been some work in this area, but it's something that I think as technology advances will uh, raise additional questions, some of which we probably cannot even predict in uh, today's podcast. Um, and so this is really, you know, around existing conversations about who we are, but then there are developments in this space that really will unfold over the coming decades uh, around issues that we haven't necessarily touched on. And so part of what we say is, again, rather than being prescriptive around, you know, three things that we need to do to ensure we secure rights in this new age, we really outline some of these concerns and dilemmas and predicaments and uh, identify some potential uh, things to think about. For example, Sheila Jasonoff, who's written extensively on this, has talked about the establishment of a global observatory for gene editing as a way to think about how the potential for science of science can be better steered by the values and priorities of society. And I think that uh, as we in increasingly live in an age where it's not just digital, but it's also increasingly commodified, thinking about the public interest uses of uh, scientific and technological advancements and having safeguards in place are very, very important. And particularly at a time when vast majorities of people in countries around the world are not able to access the right to health. Um, and there are significant barriers around attaining uh, improvements with the what's called the underlying determinants of health, such as safe drinking water and sanitation and, and so on. So it's, it's really imperative for us to think about these issues in new ways and to think about ways to include people from academia and civil society and from affected communities in, um, in, in these efforts, not just having technocratic solutions to problems. So just to go back a, a couple of steps, um, what, what is your position then on rights in DNA? Like, do, you, do we need to recognize new rights um, to control the use of our DNA? And how, how would they be enforced, of course, DNA is interconnected. My DNA is also my mother's DNA, and it's also my grandmother's DNA. So, how how would you enforce those rights? Yeah. So, you know, there's there's several issues that come up, and I think some of this is also tied to the right to privacy. So, there's increasingly sort of DNA data banks, for example, right? So, uh, that compile all of this information. Some of this is really at a national level. So, thinking about uh, the retention policy, the ac acquisition policy the the you know 
the sharing policy of these sorts of entities and also um, the use of these DNA data banks in the case of communities who are vulnerable, who aren't able to actually give consent to be part of these programs. So for example, children who were separated from their parents on the US-Mexico border and were held in detention, then there was discussion of US using DNA testing to be able to reunite these uh, children with parents or family members. And that raises a lot of questions around you know, the rights of the child, but then also like, are these children able to consent to be part of these programs? And will these uh, data banks then be used to track people who are in the country undocumented or, or whose asylum claims are pending? Similarly, there are data banks of DNA um, information of people who've been arrested. And again, thinking about whether, um, you know, there are specific groups that are arrested at higher rates, not because they have committed more crimes, but because of certain biases in society and what are the implications. So I think, you know, again, the chapter sort of lays out a set of considerations for people to think about before we rush into thinking that more technology means better solutions, more transparency, more efficiency. Uh, you know, so we're outlining some of the considerations uh, that we want to think about for a society that is rights respect. And then another significant development that you discuss is the creation of synthetic embryos from um, stem cells, um, or often referred to as sheafs. Um, how should we start to think about the rights of sheafs themselves, um, if they should have any rights at all? Yeah, so we don't necessarily advocate for these rights, but what we do try and um, say is that there's a whole set of technological advancements that are taking place, often in our backyards, literally, right? Uh, in Cambridge here or Oxford there and elsewhere. And um, what are the ethical and rights considerations that we need to think about and have safeguards and inputs in place prior to us getting to a point where the technology has really kind of overtaken us? So um, you know, so we we describe the scenario, so we don't necessarily say that there need to be um, specific rights in these instances, but it may be that we may in the future think about the right not to be tortured or not right not to have pain inflicted and so on. Um, but again, it's it's really um, uh, uh, raises a range of concerns about, you know, what it means to be human, what it means to be eligible for rights. And what are the scenarios that are developing in the future that we could never have envisioned 70 years ago when we um, conceptualized and drew up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? And we think the human rights lens is particularly important. You know, one could think of a policy lens or one could think of a transparency lens. There's different ways to think about this. But I think the human rights lens, which thinks about bodily integrity, dignity, freedom from discrimination, the realization of capabilities, respect for privacy, respect for autonomy, um, you know, inclusion of affected communities. These are all important um, values that we think that could contribute to the dialogue. The discussion about synthetic embryos um, overlaps quite considerably with your discussion of animal rights and um, robot rights as well, um, because 
one of the things that you kind of grapple with is sort of at what point does an organism experience is sort of is it sentient and therefore deserving of these kind of basic rights um you know to what extent do you draw on for example these other areas like animal rights and thinking about rights uh, and new rights in these contexts yeah you know it's interesting because um you know again as we conceived of these chapters and approach them we didn't see these as all exhaustive uh, but some people have reacted in particular to certain chapters that they felt were either controversial or pushing the edge. And I think on the on the robot rights, for example, what we talk about is not necessarily that robots should have the same rights as uh, humans. And often the people who've reacted actually have not read <laughs> the book at all, but have just heard sort of a sentence or two or read the back jacket. And what we say is that, you know, with advancements in technologies, what we may want to think about is some concepts such as having not necessarily rights to all robots, right? Um, there may be some some uh, that are capable of deep learning that could be candidates for some rights. So not your self-driving car, for example. Um, we don't necessarily need to accord all rights uh, to all rights claiming robots and not equal rights. And, and so, but it again lays out a set of considerations for us as we think about a future where there's in, increased interaction between humans and machines and increased um, developments in, in machines that we interact with. Uh, you know, our animal rights chapters, in some ways, there's intersections of themes with all of these chapters, right? Like they all connect with each other in different ways. Um, but I, I saw the animal rights chapter and the rights of nature as somewhat connected in some ways where we talk about the larger world we live in and for how can humans best coexist with the planet and as well as with non-human animals and uh, how do we respect the rights and dignities of others as well. In practice, where are we on these discussions? So obviously the book lays out the landscape of changes, social technical changes that we should be thinking about and how these might um engage human rights uh, discourse but in reality are these conversations taking place like outside of your book um, and have we seen any efforts to recognize um, some of the you know rights you discuss in the book whether that's of robots or uh, synthetic embryos yeah so the book actually came out in the middle of the pandemic and I think that actually the pandemic has revealed uh, a lot of you know, rights in, and in, uh, violations and inequities, some of which were kind of hidden, but then have been resurfaced. And um, in fact, the growing divide between the rich and the poor based on sort of tech billionaires increasing their wealth dramatically really um, reveals the kind of dramatic influence of technology in society, as well as the role that technology is playing in remote work in people who are deemed essential workers who have to be on the job where they can't use technology to work from home, but they have to be on the job and that has really exposed them further. So I think the past year has revealed that the conversations surrounding the topics in this book are even more essential than ever. Um, uh, but I think the first few months for us were really um, just like everybody around the world adapting to this new situation you know, worry about the present moment, leave alone the future. But we're actually finding that as people are thinking of pivoting to the future, hopefully in a more just uh, post-pandemic world, 
that these conversations are resurfacing. But I will say that some of these conversations are not new ones. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, indigenous communities might think very, um, you know, organically and, you know, have been thinking for a long time about the rights of nature. Um, societies where there has been surveillance for a long time are used to thinking about surveillance and the right to privacy um, in ways that are really essential to their well-being and, and to their survival. So some of these pick on age-old themes, but in, in new ways. And my hope is that the book will stimulate conversation, stimulate opportunities for collaboration, and that also that, you know, people who are younger in this work will embark on taking up these questions. Like we don't necessarily propose all the answers, but really provide some thought-provoking questions and considerations for people to think about as they embark on this work. Um, of course, it's important to uh, provoke and um, encourage new directions, but is there any sense that some of these directions might be a distraction from more fundamental Mm -hmm. um, work that needs to be done. So, you know, going into a, a, one of the chapters in your book is about uh, gender and and um, various related rights. And you talk about a right to transition, right? Um, that's obviously important, but quite a specific right. Um, and I wondered whether focusing on that or encouraging advocacy and activism specifically targeted on the right to transition may detract or distract in some way from really just fundamental work that needs to still be done on rights to non-discrimination um, or other basic rights? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this has come up in other contexts, right, where people have said, well, what, why why do this when you can do that? And, and one of the things we're saying is that these rights are really indivisible and they're universal. And sometimes to be able to secure an existing right, you may need something else in your toolbox. And so in that particular case, I think, you know, um, just like 50, 100 years ago, we may not have thought of women's rights as human rights. We've moved forward on that um, area. We may not have thought of um, the rights of people, uh, you know, uh, with disabilities. We have moved forward in that arena. Um, the rights of LGBTQ communities uh, as well is something where we've made some progress, but there's still a ways to go. And uh, in fact, if you look at the treatment of people, um, you know, around the world, um, many places, you know, people who are uh, trans are increasingly under attack, uh, fear of death, persecution, and and not just by like the random person on the street. It's the police. It's 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 um, employers. There's so you know. I think what we're proposing is something that's forward looking, that really looks to the horizon to say, what are the issues. Um, that we need to be addressing that we're not currently addressing. And just like there were naysayers in the past who said, oh, if we do women's rights, that's going to take away from other things. Or if we do LGBTQ rights, that's going to take away from, you know, women's rights. And and what we're saying is that you, you can do both. You can really say we need to address the existing range of rights that have not been fully addressed. We need to secure an adequate standard of living for people. Uh, we don't want to pit one set of rights against the other. You know, we think they're all important. And and where where is sort of human rights advocacy and activism really taking place? Like, where is the energy for all of this going to come from? Well, I I mean, you know, different people might have different perspectives, but I really draw strength from uh, grassroots groups and social movements and people on the ground. 
I think that uh, people in academia are sometimes slow on the uptake for things. They're resistant to change. They're often mired in like certain boxes. Um, and even some of the global human rights organizations, I think they do great work, but they're very often, you know, structured in certain ways, financed in certain ways. And um, so my inspiration comes from groups on the ground uh, that are doing great work. And so do you think that we're we're generally seeing a move and a continuing move away from like the post-war uh, world order, which was sort of centered around the UN and, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But um, from what you say, is, is the sort of future of human rights discourse going to be more local and more grassroots rather than international and kind of institutional? I think it needs to be both. Um, but I think if it's driven by the large global institutions like the funders, the, you know, bilaterals and, you know, the UN and other entities, then the challenge really becomes that, um, you know, the authoritarians around the world will keep pushing back and saying that human rights are a Western concept being imposed upon, you know, the rest of the world and that they will point out to the hypocrisies. And there are many in the West, right? Like they'll point to the uh, continued use of Guantanamo to detain prisoners, they're going to point to um, the war on terror or the treatment of asylum seekers in Europe. So I think that uh, we we do need um, an international community that focuses on these issues, but then we also need to have robust social movements in different countries, but that connect to each other uh, in order to ensure accountability and to ensure uh, sort of an uptake of these values. And so... Um... How does this intersect with the work that you're doing at the Car Center at Harvard? Yeah, so I've been at the Car Center now. It's my sixth year. Um, and um, I think this connects in some ways, but it's also very different because this project that Bill and I conceptualized was really conceptualized before we came to the Car Center. And then um, because we've had a history of working together, we were both judges on the Robert F. Kennedy Center's uh, Human Rights Award, where you select like one amazing leader, and um, they get a call one day from Mrs. Kennedy, and they've been selected for this award, and it's a really amazing organization. So we did that together for about five years, and then he and I also worked together collaboratively before I came to the Car Center. So the book, in some ways, predated the Car Center, or at least the idea for the book, but then I learned a lot with many of the people who are my colleagues at the center, and um, three years ago, um, Matthias Risa, who's our... Um, Center director and myself uh, embarked on thinking about as the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration was being commemorated at the Car Center and around the world, how do we think about the positioning of the Car Center's priorities as we look forward? And we kind of embarked on this theme of technology and human rights serving as an anchor for the center's work. And we thought about this in a couple of different ways that technology really can help move the human rights agenda forward because we often see groups using, for example, satellite data to monitor the flow of people who are uh, displaced or refugees or being trafficked. Um, you can use AI in, in certain instances. You can use forensic technology to reconstruct crime scenes or um, you know, massacres and to hold perpetrators accountable. But in many cases, there are also um, ways in which technological advancements are being used to undermine uh, human rights, whether it's the monitoring of political dissidents by surveillance that we've talked about, 
or the phenomenon of deep fakes that are taking place that are really uh, destabilizing the democratic public sphere. Uh, we really need to think about the ethical and rights implications of technological innovations um, for the impact, not just on specific rights, but also on the entire human rights framework. And we then embarked on a series of um, weekly talks, which are free and open to the public. We have an annual conference, and then we have a virtual fellows program, which is a really wonderful way to bring together people from dis different disciplines who are working on different topics on uh, related to the issue of technology and human rights, you know, in a very broad way. And um, so, you know, we've, we've been doing this now two, three years, and we're now at this sort of pivot point of thinking about how to finance it, how to scale it, how to increase its impact, and so on. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I host a podcast at the center. Uh, it's called Justice Matters, and we touch on a lot of the themes we've touched on today. Um, where, but we also talk about other issues as well, broadly related to rights. So we've talked about everything from, you know, the the values of forgiveness in the justice system to the January sixth events at the Capitol and the role of technology to um, unveil the identity of the uh, rioters to um, AI and human rights and so on. So there's a lot of stuff happening at the center. And I think as I look forward to the future of the center, I also think about sort of the future of rights that I've unveiled in my book and, and, you know, hope to kind of build on both in different ways. It's a great podcast. I've listened to it. Um, so Sushma, thank you so much for coming on um, Technology and Pro. It's been great chatting to you. Um, great to read your book. Um, and I wish you all uh, best of luck with, with the with the car center right, where um, you're doing great work. So thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. That was Sushma Raman, co-author of The Coming Good Society, Why New Realities Demand New Rights. On the next and final episode of the season, I'll be joined by John Danaher to discuss his recent book, Automation and Utopia. There's all these theories about meaningful work and the, the goods associated with work, that work is a way in which people can achieve mastery over a certain skill set, that they can contribute to their communities, that they can find a sense of, kind of self-respect and status in society. That's probably not true for many people, is that it, work is not the main way in which they access these goods to the extent that it is true, it's largely because people aren't given an alternative. They have to find mastery in work. They have to find community in work because they spend all their time preparing for work, commuting to work, performing work, recovering from work. So work just occupies this sort of central, or is the central forum in their life. And so they have to find whatever good things they want from life in work. And that could be a bad thing if non-work alternatives are better. Thank you for listening, and until next time.